I'm going to start out this morning with a little bit of Nazarene culture pop quiz. Right? So all our long-term Nazarene folks, you ready? Got your fingers on your buzzers? Just kidding, there's no buzzers. Um, does anybody know what SDMI stands for? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Sunday School Discipleship Ministries International. Everybody familiar with that? Have you heard of SDMI? Did you know that SDMI is no longer a thing in the Church of the Nazarene? Back a few weeks ago, they had a meeting of the general church and they renamed it. It didn't go away, they've just renamed it. It is now Nazarene Discipleship International. It's NDI, right? So let's continue on with the, uh, a little bit of the Nazarene quiz. Uh, what is uh, NYI? Have you heard of NYI? Yeah, Brenda. <laughs> right, and then we have NMI, right, which is? So what they've done is they've brought discipleship into kind of a similar naming structure and convention, and now it's Nazarene Discipleship International. Does anybody know what uh, TDI is? That's the diesel engines in Volkswagens. Um, (laughs) Nothing to do with what we're doing today. But NDI, so there's a renewed focus in in the Church of the Nazarene on discipleship. Back several months ago, they released kind of this new approach, it's not a new approach, but it's a, a new way of clarifying the mission and purpose of discipleship. Um, I'm really excited about it as, as a pastor uh, because there's this emphasis, emphasis on discipleship not as a particular sliver in the life of the church, not like a moment or a category, a classification of a certain type of church activity, but discipleship as basically the way of living as Christians. Um, they call it a journey of grace. You'll probably see here and, and, and encounter all types of things about journey of grace over the next several years. This is a big uh, uh, emphasis within the general church of the Nazarene. And uh, like I said, it's, it's about discipleship as a focus on God's grace and God's work in our lives. We start there. Um, as opposed to starting with an idea of like what status do we have? Are you a lost person or a saved person? Or are you, um, you know, new or, or old type of thing? As opposed to focusing on what status in the bucket you are in, we start with God and God's grace and God's mercy. Um, and so it's, it's, it's exciting for me as a, as a pastor to see this emphasis. I think it's going to give us some tools in our toolbox and help us to have conversations about discipleship as, like I said a few moments ago, being something that is uh, all-encompassing of the Christian life. It's not just a class we sit in, oh, I went to discipleship class, or you know, Sunday school or a small group, oh, I was in discipleship for an hour, or, well, first, first you gotta get people saved, right? They're in the lost category, so then we gotta, we gotta do evangelism first, and then once they get saved, then we switch the conversation, and then it becomes discipleship, which basically means get them in a class and educate them about the Bible. Like, what what the new journey of grace thing is, is, is going to do, I think, I hope, um, at least how I'm gonna interpret it, is it's talking about the grace that is, is present before you even become a Christian. It talks about prevenient grace, that God is at work in the lives of unbelievers. And then it moves to self, saving grace, the grace of salvation, the, the work that God is doing to save us. And then sanctifying grace, the work that God's grace is doing in our lives to make us more like Jesus, to make us set apart and holy. So like I said, the emphasis on God's grace and God's work being the primary focus is, is, is such a great uh, uh, way to view the work of the church, the work of discipleship. Um, 
I understand that uh, there's some pragmatic reasons, some practical reasons to divide the work of the church into different buckets, like we have evangelism over here and discipleship over here, and, and I understand why that has happened. There's probably some very practical ways, like we need these types of resources to evangelize and these types of resources to disciple and educate people. Um, but that having been the categories for a few generations now, um, I think we can start to see that there's some harm that's been done by that as well. And so, um, and, and I say that because as soon as we start to operate, that the, the church has two different missions, the mission to evangelize and then the mission to disciple, um, churches have to start asking what is the priority? What's the most important thing? When push comes to shove, when there's limited resources, when there's only a few uh, volunteers able to do something, when there's only X number of dollars in the checkbook, which one are we going to focus on? And so we're put in this bind of having to say, what's the most important work of the church? Are we trying to evangelize and get lost people to become saved people, or are we trying to educate people that are already saved and help them know more about Jesus? And so today on Palm Sunday, I'm gonna try and uh, help us using this view of of grace, um, but more importantly, the, the story of Palm Sunday. I'm gonna try and use that to help us break down some of those categories and help us redefine discipleship in such a way that we are empowered as a church uh, to live out this mission that that God has given us. Um, No small goal, but we're gonna try it. Um, Today is Palm Sunday, it's the story of Jesus entering Jerusalem. And as he enters Jerusalem, he encounters a lot of people. And these people kind of fit into different categories and different groups. And so he, he encounters different groups and they all have different reactions to him. And so just kind of give you a little bit of a preview. The way that the sermon is going to be structured is going to be by looking at the different groups that he encountered and understanding not only uh, why they react or how they reacted to him when they saw him, but maybe why they reacted that way. Um, there's groups of people who encounter and meet Jesus on Palm Sunday. The, this, this holy week is filled with people that, that encounter Jesus and many of them don't come to faith. When they meet Jesus, they don't have a response of faith. They have a, a different response. And so that's what our message today is gonna look at, is these people that met Jesus, that heard about Jesus, that saw Jesus themselves, they experienced him firsthand and walked away saying, that's not the Messiah, that's not my king, that's not my savior. Um, it's a tragic story because so many of these people meet Jesus, so many of these people encounter him, they, they meet him firsthand and they walk away, they don't follow Jesus, they don't love Jesus because they don't know Jesus, they don't understand who he really is when they encounter him. And so that's the story we're gonna look at today. It's gonna to be in John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. Like I said, this is a pretty familiar text. Um, I hope you guys can see that. I was playing around with my slides. It's pretty light. Um, should have stuck with darker background. Um, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been, done, had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. 
Now the crowd that was raised with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed the sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Pray with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, wondrous spirit, we pray that you gather our minds that they may be one with you. Open our ears that they may hear your word. Soften our hearts that they may receive your wisdom. Speak to us, for we, your servants, are listening. Amen. All right, so like I said, what we're going to do in this, especially this first part of the message, is look at a group of people that encountered Jesus. We're going to look a little bit at their background story and then look at how their background story shaped their reaction and their response to who Jesus is. And so the first one we're gonna look at is the, the, the crowd. I, again, I hope you can see this. I should have made it a little bit darker. Um, so who saw Jesus? Well, the first group we're gonna look at is the crowd. Their context, their context is a messianic hope. And by what we mean by that is that Israel is the story of God's people and the story of their relationship with God. That's what the story of Israel is. God rescued them from Egypt. He called them his own. He cared for them in the wilderness. He gave them land. He defeated their enemies, and he invited them to be God's people. They were his people. And while desiring to be God's chosen people, while wanting to lay hold of that status, that promise, that covenant, while wanting to be the chosen they consistently refused to follow God's commandments, his commands, and they refused to participate in the mission that God had sent them on. Right? Think of the prophet, the story of Jonah, right? Like That's a symbolic representation of all of Israel. God called them with a mission and they said, yeah, no thanks, we'd rather not. Um, that's the story of Israel. We wanna be God's people, we want the status, we want the title, we want the blessings of it, but when it comes to us keeping our end, they failed time and time again. And they refused to participate in the mission that God had given them. And the prophets tell us, if you read through the Old Testament prophets, you'll hear that God finally gets to the point where he's, he's done with their disobedience. And he allows the sin of Israel to result in them being conquered and exiled, being taken to foreign lands, the result of years and years and generations of disobedience and unfaithfulness and and sin results in Israel being conquered and the people being exiled, taken from this promised land. Now, some were eventually allowed to return. There's a point in time where, where a select group are able to come back to Israel and kind of start over, start anew. They start rebuilding the temple, rebuilding city walls, those types of things. But it isn't ever the same again. Um, There's conflict, there's division, multiple camps within that group vying over who's gonna control what, who's gonna be in power, who's gonna rule, um, differences of opinions, generations of being in exile, coming back, everybody kinda has their own idea of what should be done and who should be in charge. And so eventually, some of the people vying for power who want control go to a third party 
and say, hey, help us figure out who should rule. And the third party that they go to is this neighbor, this neighboring empire called the Romans. They said, hey, Rome, would you help us figure out who should be ruling right now? This camp over here says so-and-so, and this camp over here says somebody else. Who should be ruling? And so Rome said, sure, we'll help you. We'll think about it. And after a short little while, Rome comes back and says, we got the perfect ruler for you guys. It'll be us. Um, Rome should rule. And looking back, you should have seen that coming a mile away, but these people in Israel were so caught up in this fight between the two of them that they had no idea what they were walking into. So they asked Rome to help them decide, and Rome says, we should rule. And so by the time Jesus comes around, Rome's rule is well established. They've been there for several generations, and the impact of being a nation ruled by Rome uh, is being felt. And so Rome's rule was political. It talked about governments and who was in charge of what and taxes and all those types of things, but it also impacted their religious life. Now, Rome didn't come in and say, well, you can't be Jewish, but it shaped and limited what they could do. And so for the average Jew in the time of Jesus, the Messiah was expected to come, remove Rome, restore Israel to proper political and religious standing, right? So the Messiah was gonna be political, but he was also going to be religious, right? He was gonna kick out the Romans and, and remove their infringements on the temple and the worship and, and all of that, and then be the religious leader that we've been waiting for. So that's the context of the crowd. These people that have encountered Jesus on that day, that's their backstory. This messianic hope. We're waiting for a political and religious Messiah. Now how has this context shaped their view of Jesus? So the crowds heard about Jesus. The, the scripture we read a few moments ago said that the, those who saw Jesus call Lazarus back to life, that they continued to tell their story Word was getting out about this Jesus, the miracles that he was doing, the, the, his teachings, the things he was saying and the things he was doing. And so they thought, this crowd thought he might be this Messiah that we've been waiting for. So they had an expectation, right? This thing that they wanted. And when they saw Jesus, they said, that's the thing, <laughs> right? He fits what we're looking for. So they go out and see him. They go out and cheer. They go out in excitement. Our Messiah has come they shout, but they meet Jesus. And when they meet Jesus, they're disappointed because he doesn't meet their expectations. He doesn't properly uh, fill all the check boxes that they wanted. They, I mean, he really does, but they can't see it. They don't understand because they're, they're shaped by how the Messiah is supposed to come through their context to the, to the point that they can't understand who Jesus was. He was the Messiah, but they couldn't see it. They evaluated Jesus based upon their own needs and their own desires, what they thought should be, and so they held Jesus up to that measuring stick, and he didn't measure up. They were looking for a military leader to overthrow the Romans. They expected Jesus to have victory the way that other kings and revolutionaries had victories. And so when they held Jesus up to the measuring stick of this messianic hope, he looked weak against this military, this com compared to this expectations of a strong leader. He, he didn't look the part. And then compared with the conflict that he's supposed to engage in with Rome, he looked passive. That didn't appear to be on Jesus' agenda anywhere. He confronted Rome, but not in the way that they wanted him to. 
And so this crowd met Jesus and they celebrated him for a moment for who they thought they, that he was, only to be disappointed and reject him when they realized he didn't appear to be the long-awaited Messiah. They met Jesus. They had hope that God was gonna send a Messiah and yet they walked away disappointed from that encounter. Their context, it shaped their expectations and their desires and it caused them to miss out on who Jesus really was. I mean, they met him in flesh. Like, I, I've operated as this assumption that if Jesus walked in through the doors of our sanctuary this morning, we'd all instantly recognize who he was and what he was doing, that that would solve all of our problems, but here's some people that were looking for a Messiah and they met Jesus and walked away disappointed. The next group we're gonna look at this morning um, is the Pharisees. They, they saw Jesus, they heard about Jesus, they heard about his stories and his miracles and his teachings, right? Their context, strict adherence to the law was the most important thing. So the Pharisees started in the right place. They properly understood the teachings of the prophets. They understood that the reason there was exile, the reason that, that Israel had been defeated before, the reason why, why they were kicked out of the promised land was because of their sin that they hadn't followed God closely enough. They hadn't been faithful to the covenant, to the commands, the teachings of God. They understood that the reason for Israel's sufferings and the exile was because they weren't following the teachings of the law and the prophets. And so their response to this was demanding a higher adherence, a higher standard of living for everyday people. They said, we went into exile, we lost everything. We lost the land, we lost the temple, we lost everything because of our sin. Our sin came between us and God. Our lack of faith, our lack of obedience to God caused this. And so their response was saying, we can't do that again. We need to be faithful, we need to be more faithful. And so what they did, their, their big move was that they took temple purity laws, things that you were supposed to do when you went to go worship in the temple, and they said, well, if it's good in the temple, it's probably good everywhere else. And so they took the temple purity laws and said, we're gonna apply that to everyday life. Anything that you need to do to go worship God, we're gonna do that in, you know, on the streets, in our homes, in, in our schools, because we gotta be pure. We gotta get the sin out. We can't tolerate, God won't tolerate sin any longer. And so they addressed some of this concern about the sin of Israel. Like the, they started in a good place, I think. But what they did was create such a huge, heavy religious burden on the everyday person. They created such an expectation and such a burden that could not be lived out. The things that you do in the temple, you can't do on a Tuesday at two o'clock in the afternoon for an everyday blue collar person. You just couldn't. And so Jesus calls them out on this. Right? This is the encounters that he has with the Pharisees time and time again in the Gospels. is saying, you have placed a burden that is too heavy on these people. Now, their, their motivation was probably in the right place. We can't have sin. Sin's bad. They wanted their faith to shape every element of their lives because they took God seriously and they understood the consequences of sin. They understood it really well. We're just a few generations back from exile. We can't forget that sin leads us to death. And how that shaped their view of Jesus. So Jesus shows up performing miracles. 
It's a sign, right? That's what the miracles are for. Even in the Gospel of John, he, he doesn't even call miracles. He calls them signs. This is a sign that he might be from God. He might be the Messiah. This is an indication that he might be this anointed um, chosen one that's going to come and lead Israel in proper worship. But then Jesus starts forgiving and healing sinners. Right? He starts tolerating them. He starts having dinner with them. He starts telling them that they're forgiven. He doesn't come up and punish them. He doesn't show up and, and chastise them and criticize them and condemn them and cast them out. He comes up and is friends with these sinners. And on the flip side, there's these people that are being righteous that are trying to fulfill the laws and Jesus starts calling them out, says you're, you're just acting. You're hypocrites, you're actors, you're two-faced. You're washing the outside of the cup, but your inside hasn't been transformed. You're doing all these works, but it's not leading to holiness, it's leading to pride. Jesus is not gentle with his assessment of the Pharisees. And so he shows up and he's welcoming to the sinners and critical of the religious. The Pharisees anticipated a Messiah, but they couldn't see this Jesus as a Messiah because there was too much grace, too much inclusion, and it meant that he was too accepting of sin in their camp. And so he was the opposite of what these Pharisees expected. He didn't show up and punish these sinful. He didn't reward those who kept the law with precision. The Pharisees met Jesus, but they didn't understand what he was doing. They didn't know him. And according to their rules on how to deal with sin, Jesus was doing all the wrong things. He was not doing the right things to be the Messiah. And so they rejected him and eventually labeled him as an enemy. This man is working against us. So that's the Pharisees. Another group that encounters Jesus during this Holy Week, while not specifically in our scripture today, this is a very important group as, as we go through Holy Week together as a church. This is the Roman rulers and temple officials. And their context is <laughs> they need to maintain control despite all the conflicts. This is their job. Roman rulers, temple rulers, their job is to keep the crowd content, controlled, in order, right? With them at the top, obviously, but like to keep things the way that it's supposed to be. Because they're only a few years removed from revolts. And I don't know how much of, of like uh, intertestimonial history you're familiar with, like the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But there's these Jewish leaders that rise up every now and then. And they start revolutions. They start wars, some small, some large. Some of them are just more like terrorist acts. Like they just go and attack small little groups of stuff. Sometimes they gather an army and fight. But there's these Jewish revolts that happen from time to time. And so every so often this Jewish leader would rise up and lead a revolution, lead a rebellion. And this reflected poorly on the Roman leaders. Again, it wasn't anything that Rome couldn't handle. Rome's military might was far exceeding anything Israel could have ever put together. But it reflected poorly on their leadership. And it required extra resources to come and put down this rebellion and then it caused bad relationships with the locals and that takes a long time to fix and all the mess. And, all that. And so the leaders did their best to keep the people content while also keeping them aligned with Rome's priorities. It's like the, the temple, the grand temple that was in Israel during the time of Jesus, that was built by Herod. 
right? To, to show, to help uh, keep the crowds content. Like, we're not, we're not here to cause trouble. We're here to help you, right? We're here to help you worship. Like, we're not, we're not bad guys. We're just different, right? And so Roman rulers kind of worked to assimilate Jewish culture into the Roman Empire. Uh, Judea ultimately was pretty insignificant, uh, compared to the Roman Empire, like on the greater scheme of things, Israel, Rome, didn't, they didn't measure up the same. There was no equals there. Um, but the trade routes in the area were important to Rome. They wanted access to the Mediterranean. They wanted access to some of the other trade routes. So it made it an important territory. So you got these Roman rulers and the, the temple priests that they know that upheaval, rebellion, revolt, they could probably handle it, but it might cost them their position. So how did that shape their view of Jesus? Well, Jesus showed up. It seems like everywhere he went, there was large crowds that followed. Large crowds of religiously motivated people. Large crowds of people that were excited about this leader. Large crowds that were willing to follow this guy and to do what he asked them to do. Large crowds can be a sign of growing rebellion, growing revolutionary movement. And so if your job, if your mission is to keep things under control, then Jesus and large crowds equal trouble. Jesus did teach at one point, he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, which sounds like he kind of reinforces the empire's rule. But in that same sentence, he says, give to God what is God's, which seems to announce that there's limits to what Rome has authority over. That there's this other authority, this other controlling authority that we should submit to that's not Rome. And this is kind of how you start rebellion. You start attacking, rejecting the authority of the rulers. And so Jesus created some instability in the area. His presence uh, was troubled because he wasn't affiliated with the temple. He wasn't part of that whole system. He wasn't under the authority of the, the priest there, like The priest wasn't telling him what to do. He was just off doing his own thing. So he created instability in the religious environment. And then there was those who thought he could be this next king of of Israel. So there was instability in the political realm. He challenged the religious and political systems. And so he was a threat. They had to keep an eye on. The Roman rulers encountered Jesus, but they saw him as a political revolutionary and a threat to their peace. So who else saw Jesus? Well, his disciples, those who had been following him from the early days. They'd been following him for a while. Some of them had been following him for multiple years. They'd been listening to him teach. They'd seen him perform these miracles. They were learning how to live the way that Jesus lived. I mean, that was the definition of a rabbi and a disciple. That's the relationship. It wasn't about transfer of information. It wasn't just about education. It was about how do you live the way that your rabbi lived. And so right before Holy Week, Jesus and his disciples, they had to run from several towns because their lives were in danger. They escaped from these cities and villages because their lives were in threat. And then Lazarus died And Jesus wanted to go back to an area that he wasn't welcome in to go see the family and we know that he ends up performing a miracle there and bringing Lazarus back. And there's this moment in that story right before they go back to to visit Lazarus where Thomas, 
I love Thomas. I think if I had to pick one of the 12 disciples that I associated with, it would be Thomas. Um, he gets the label doubting Thomas, but I think it's more like sarcastic Thomas or um, snarky Thomas. Because in his moment, he's like, well, there goes Jesus. I guess we should go and die with him. Like, that's exactly what he says. That's the scripture. <laughs> Let's go die with him. Uh, and then Jesus goes to Jerusalem, and the disciples follow him. So how did their context shape their view of Jesus? Well, here's these, these women and these men that followed Jesus, listened to him teach, saw miracles, learned how to live that way. They had left their families. They had left their, their homes, their jobs to follow this Jesus. They had spent time learning how to live the way that he lived. They met Jesus those years before, but now, three years in, they are fully dependent on him. They call Jesus Lord, Messiah, King, Rabbi, Teacher. When Jesus is, is eventually arrested and taken away, they are lost. They don't know what to do without him because they are dependent on him. He has guided them every step of the way for the past three years. And when he is gone, they have nobody to follow. Peter, at one point, when asked if he was going to leave the group, says, where should we go? Who else are we going to follow? And that's the reality of these disciples. They have put everything into the Jesus basket. Um, they called him rabbi first, teacher. But through their following of him, watching, observing, learning, Peter proclaims, you are the Messiah. You are Lord. They've learned to depend on him as this one that God has sent so while the Pharisees, the Romans, and the crowd, they all see Jesus, they encounter Jesus, they define Jesus as a threat, as a failure, as an enemy, the disciples watched Jesus go into Jerusalem. They did their best to follow him, to be faithful to him. And so I hope you're all starting to ask the question that weighs heavy on my heart as a pastor. I told the story specifically that way, highlighted these different groups because I hope you ask this question. Why do some people meet Jesus and see him as weak, see him as a threat, or see him as an enemy, while others can encounter Jesus and see what he's up to and be willing to follow him no matter the cost? Again, as Thomas said, let's go die with him. <laughs> to let go of everything else, to pledge their allegiance their faith to him alone. So as a church who's been talking a lot lately about reaching the lost and sharing Jesus in our community, do you think we should investigate a little bit why some people can meet Jesus and when they meet him, understand him as the Messiah, their savior, while others can meet him and reject him and his teachings? Palm Sunday is this convergence of all these different groups, like all the different movements and motivations and all the different expectations and hope clash, crash together here in Jerusalem during Holy Week. All these groups have met Jesus, who have heard about him, who've been keeping an eye on him. They all end up in Jerusalem together. There's a lot of people in this gospel story that heard about Jesus. They heard his teaching. They heard his miracles. They even met him in person but they did not embrace him as Messiah. They did not profess him as their king, as their Lord. 
They didn't understand him. They didn't see him as God. They didn't see the divinity. They didn't receive his forgiveness that he offered. They didn't receive the grace and mercy he was uh, offering. And they didn't hear his message as good news. Many people saw Jesus and somehow came to the wrong conclusion about him. The context of their lives and the context of our lives can serve as a lens through which we shape or distort our view of Jesus and who he is. So how do we make sure today, how do we make sure that we are really seeing Jesus, that we're not being distorted by our context, that we, like the crowd, aren't, aren't looking for a particular type of thing when we look for Jesus, or we don't see Jesus as a threat to our own agendas and our own control and our power, or, or we don't see Jesus as being too forgiving, too gracious, and, and say, well, there's gotta be standards. How do we make sure we're seeing Jesus for who he really is? How do we prevent our situation and our context from distorting Jesus and the revelation of God through him? And how do we reach others with the gospel in such a way that they not only hear about Jesus, but they encounter him as the real Jesus? How do we, how do we help introduce people to Jesus in such a way that they say, yes, that's my savior, that's my Lord, versus no, that's not what I'm looking for? How do we help them see Jesus clearly in their context? Well, over the past several weeks, Pastor Will and I have actually been sharing the answer to that question in our sermons. We've been talking about spiritual disciplines. And it's through those spiritual disciplines that we can encounter Jesus, the real Jesus. In our Palm Sunday story with all these different groups, the group of people who understand Jesus as Messiah, the group of people that are able to pledge their faith and follow Jesus are the ones who have been practicing the teachings of Jesus all along. They're the ones that have been doing the things that he told them to do, living with him, uh, living the life that he had prescribed for them. They're the ones that are able to say, oh, I thought he was just my rabbi, but he is my Lord. They're able to see Jesus for who he is. They were his disciples, they were his apprentices. And so if we want to make sure that we are experiencing the real Jesus, that our context and situation isn't distorting our view of Jesus, if we not only want to hear about Jesus, but to meet him, to engage him, to get to know him in a personal relationship, we don't need more information about him. That's not the goal. But rather we need to participate in the life-giving practices through which Jesus reveals himself. So we've been talking about fasting, about prayer, repentance, generosity, Sabbath keeping. These aren't activities that are meant to get you to heaven when you die. That's not the goal. These are practices to help you grow deeper in your relationship with Jesus. This is why several months ago I introduced a simple definition of a disciple. You've seen this over the past few months and you'll continue to see this again. But a disciple is somebody who loves God, who loves others, and serves the world. Our goal as a church is not to be people who know about Jesus, people that have heard about Jesus, or know some facts about him. But our goal is to be a people, to be a church who are formed by a personal and communal relationship with him. Under the loving God uh, umbrella is worship. 
That's prayer, it's singing, it's repentance, it's generosity, it's Sabbath, it's fasting. As we participate in these activities, these practices, we not only learn more about Jesus, but we experience Jesus and we learn how to love and follow God better. As we do these things, as we become apprentices of King Jesus, we are shaped and formed more like him. We better understand what he is doing. Under the love others bucket, it says connect. It's connecting in relationships, right? Praying for others, seeking forgiveness when we are wrong, generous to others, participating in the life of the community. As we do that, as we engage others in Christian fellowship, we experience the presence of Jesus amongst us. And so more important than knowing Jesus is six foot tall or five foot seven or somewhere in between, more important than knowing those facts is knowing Jesus that we experience in the life of the church as we love others and as they love us. And then serving the world, using what God has given us to carry out the mission that he has called us to. As we serve others, we encounter God's goodness using what God has given us to care for others' needs, to participate in the ministries of church, to care for those whom Jesus said our ministry to them is an act of ministry to him. This is how we grow as disciples of Jesus. But beyond that, this is our mission as a church. Not for people to hear about Jesus, but for people to become disciples of Jesus, people who love God, who love others and serve. The Pharisees heard about Jesus, And they rejected him because of their understanding of sin and holiness. The Romans heard about Jesus and attacked him because of their agenda and desire to keep power and control. The crowd heard about Jesus and rejected him because he didn't call their enemies his enemies. We don't just want people to hear about Jesus, but we want people to follow Jesus, to know Jesus, to be formed by Jesus. In short, we desire to make disciples of Jesus. We desire the purpose, uh, the mission of our church is to make apprentices of Jesus, people who not only know about him, but people who know what Jesus did, know who he is. I started talking this morning about how the church has created two different categories of mission, that there's evangelism and discipleship. And I said this division has probably done some damage to the church's ability to carry out its mission because it forces us to choose if we want to evangelize or if we want to disciple. We create two different environments, two different spaces, two different strategies for are we trying to reach people that don't know Jesus or are we trying to care for people that do know Jesus and like how do we manage that tension and is it 50-50, 60-40, 100-0, like whatever, there's tension there. The invitation for today is to break down those categories, to maybe refocus or reframe the entire conversation about what it means to follow Jesus. The invitation for us today, commit to knowing Jesus through the practices of worship, through Christian connections, relationships, fellowship, and through Christian service. Commit to be a disciple. Not choose evangelism or discipleship, but commit to yourself being a disciple, somebody who will participate in these practices that Jesus taught his followers to live. 
to love God, love others, serve the world. And we will understand Jesus more clearly as we do those things. And as we are living lives as disciples, we can work to help others become disciples. To empower and equip them to know Jesus through the practices of our faith. And so when we pray, for example, we can pray for others. But it's not that big of a move to go from praying for others to praying with others. And it's not that big of a move to go from praying with others to teaching others to pray. Equipping people to live out these practices that Jesus has taught us and given us. When we are generous, we can be generous towards others. Then we can help them learn how to be generous too with what God has given them. When we seek forgiveness, when we repent, we can seek and offer forgiveness to other people. And then we can equip and empower them to repent and seek forgiveness too. When we worship, we can testify to God's glory and God's goodness in our lives. We can point to the moments in our story that God has shown up, the redemptive and healing things, the good things that God is doing. We can testify to that. And then we can invite others to see what God is doing in their lives as well. To see God's goodness, mercy. And then we can invite them and equip them, empower them to worship God as well. And when we rest in Sabbath, we can invite others to rest as well. Inviting them to surrender this cultural idol of busyness and productivity, empowering them, equipping them, encouraging them to find peace in their identity as God's beloved creation. We're used to an idea, an approach, that says um, that we have to get people to meet Jesus, and then once they've met Jesus, we can explain to them who Jesus is. We can explain to them why they, what the, yes, the person they said yes to, what that means now. But I'm asking us to change our minds about that process, to change our minds a little bit about that approach. Um, realize that people can only truly meet Jesus through the practices that he gave us, that we can really only know Jesus through the, the discipleship tools that he's given us. Because of all the people that encountered Jesus, of all the people that met him, heard about him, saw him that day as he entered Jerusalem, only those who followed his teachings, only those who experienced the new life in Jesus, only those who had forsaken everything else and had been invited to follow him and to practice these things, only those people were able to call him Messiah. Only those who had said, he's my rabbi, could eventually come to the point where they say, he's my Lord. They love God, they love others, they serve the world. Not only is that what we are called to do as individuals and as a church, but it's what we are called to invite, equip, and empower others to do as well. Because through these practices, we experience true relationship with Jesus. And if we want other people to know Jesus, then we can invite them to participate in those practices too. It's the way that we can know and have true relationship with Jesus Seeing him not as a threat, not as a disappointment, not as an enemy, but seeing him as the loving, merciful Christ, king of all creation, God's true son. Uh, Pray with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, Hosanna is our cry. 
Your son comes on a donkey in your name as Jesus entered Jerusalem to bear our sorrows and to suffer for our sins. Enter our hearts and confront our waywardness today. It is our joy to praise you for you in wondrous love. You cast stars into space and in meek obedience your son surrendered to cruel nails. It's with loving kindness you called your people in Abraham and in covenant with Moses you bound up your life in theirs. Through exile you stayed close to them and in Jesus you came among them bearing the fullness of grace and truth. Your son Jesus faced rejection, cruelty, and death and yet in resurrection you exalted him as you highly exalted your son who had become a servant to all. Highly exalt your children who suffer for righteousness or grieve those that they have cherished or bend the knee to one who does not honor them. Fill the earth with your justice and peace until every heart shall sing, every tongue shall confess that you are the joy of their desiring. It's in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit we pray now and forever. Amen. Amen.